You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. joined today by former CIA terrorism analyst Cynthia Storer. Cynthia worked at CIA from 1986 until 2007, uh, quite a lot of that time working on the terrorism target, including in the Counterterrorism Center. Uh, Cynthia now is a lecturer at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina, and she also works part-time doing intelligence and training education for the United States intelligence community, bringing to bear her Remarkable expertise in this field. We're delighted to have her. And uh, Ms. Storer, Cindy, if I may, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm glad to be here. I should mention we're, we're interviewing you uh, by Skype. And uh, Cindy and I are uh, uh, old colleagues, though not so much from the agency, more from, from post-agency time. So it's a real, real pleasure to have a friend here. Um, Cynthia, where were you working in the 1980s? And when did you start working on the Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden problems? What was your entry into this uh, strange world of jihadist terrorism? That's a great question. I started out my career actually working on imagery analysis um, of the Soviet Union, which is a far cry from this. But I did my academic work, my undergraduate academic work on, on what I like, on governments, uh, the rise and fall thereof. And I really wanted to work on insurgency. So I took a rotation to um, the Afghan branch, where I, I worked on the Afghan war and the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. Had to go back to NPIC for about a year. NPIC being the National Photographic Interpretation Center. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and then I got back to, uh, to the Director of Intelligence full-time, working on Afghanistan in 1992. At that time, the Individuals from all over the world, at least 60 countries, who had been fighting in Afghanistan were going home. And some of these people were blowing things up and shooting up shopping malls and things like that. And we were seeing that coming across our inbox because we basically had search terms that said Afghanistan. So that's, that was my introduction to this uh, issue. When did it begin to dawn on you and your colleagues that um, there was this thing out there that you ultimately came to know as al-Qaeda and that there was this guy named Osama bin Laden and that these were, you know, emerging threats to United States security. Yeah, by the time I got back to the center, 
two, I'm sorry, two, I've worked in CTC so long I say that. By the time I got back to doing Afghanistan in 1992, I already had a couple of colleagues there who were working on uh, the issue of the Arab Afghans, this is what we called all these folks, and the training camps in Afghanistan. And they were beginning to look at bin Laden already, and they were working very closely with Michael Scheuer, who was on the operation side and a senior analyst on, on the, in the DI as well at this time. So those two, I started working with them, um, and then I worked a bit with Barbara Sood, who was looking at non-governmental uh, organizations, charities, from the standpoint of the Gulf states. My two colleagues on Afghanistan eventually transferred to the Directorate of Operations in about 93, 94, and so I ended up with the primary responsibility on all of these issues from an analytical side in, in about 94, 93, 94 timeframe. And then in 1995, I transferred to the Counterterrorism Center. As you were seeing the development and emergence of Al-Qaeda and the, the growth, if you will, of Osama bin Laden into the Osama bin Laden that we came to know, was it, was it easy to persuade your colleagues and other elements of the CIA, of the intelligence community, of the U.S. government, of, of the message that, hey, these guys are a real emerging problem and you need to be paying attention to this? It was so incredibly difficult. It's, it's hard to express how incredibly difficult it was. Um, I almost gave up, actually, three separate times, at least three separate times. And I'm really glad you asked this question because it's, it's something that I think has been misrepresented um, in the press and in various books that have been written about this time period, the cadre of people I was working with, myself on the, on the uh, director of intelligence side, and mostly women working under Mike on the director of operations side, um, were very dedicated to what we were doing. And I think the only reason we all stayed through all the difficulties of how hard it really was to do this was because we all felt like we were in the right place at the right time. I know that I personally had some experiences where I felt like I was being told, you know, message from God, I, this way I interpreted it anyway, to stay there and do what needs to be done, um, like I said, on at least three different occasions. I talked to military officers in CENTCOM who felt the same way. It was really an incredible period. Well, you mentioned that a lot of the analysts working on this problem at the time were women. Uh, and my understanding is that that a lot of these women, or at least the ones who were working for Mike Scheuer, got referred to in a in a not very complimentary fashion as the Manson family. Uh, did you feel like the fact that many of you were women affected how your message was received or how you were being treated um, by your professional colleagues? You know, I really do, and it's it's hard for me to say that because the Central Intelligence Agency was really pretty far out ahead of most of government bureaucracy on, on treating women equally. And I never felt slighted, well, I shouldn't say that, I rarely felt slighted as a, as a DI analyst. And, um, and I didn't feel slighted really as a CTC analyst either, but you could see the kinds of uh, language that people used about us um, and the way they exploited the fact that we were women to put us down, to put down the issue so they wouldn't have to deal with it. So you mentioned the Manson family. Of course, he's a, a crazy person who had, you know, slavish women working for him, killing people, right? Right. Um, and we heard things like, you know, you're overly emotional, um, you're on a crusade, all those kinds of things. And all kinds of, uh, you know, what are what are women from the DI doing working in a, in a DO office? Um, and there were good reasons for it, actually, uh, for that to be happening. So even though I can't prove 
um, that sexism was a part of the issue. I think it did make it a lot easier for people who didn't want to pay attention to, to this issue to not pay attention to it. You mentioned uh, there was one occasion when I think this issue arose in the context of a business trip that you and some female colleagues made to the Middle East. Yes, three of us went on this trip uh, to the Middle East, one of whom was Barbara Seed, actually, interestingly enough. And uh, we went. I, it's actually a trip that I had arranged. We went because we were the three experts on the topic. There just was nobody else as good on it. And the station did not want us there, clearly. Um, and kept making snide remarks about how, you know, no one was going to listen to us in this particular Middle Eastern country because we were women. And the sad thing was that when we actually met with our counterparts, they listened to us a lot more than our own people did. Well, that's inspiring. <laughs> so the, the 1990s go along, and then something comes along that is often referred to as the Millennium Plots. Do you want to tell us a, a little bit about those and, and what that was all about? Yes, in this time period, Al-Qaeda and a bunch of associated groups, and you know, it's still unclear to what extent, I think it's still unclear to what extent everybody is, is formal members of Al-Qaeda as opposed to allied groups and other wannabes. That's always a question, right? But they were planning a series of attacks around the world to coincide with the, the millennium from 1999 to 2000. And then we saw something again like this from 2000 to 2001 over that winter. Um, the one you're referring to is the 1999 to 2000 transition. I was not working uh, as an analyst in the counterterrorism center at the, at the time. I'd actually taken an operational uh, rotation. So I was on this uh, temporary assignment, and I was seeing all kinds of things from my desk and really kind of pulling my hair out because I couldn't get the folks there either to take all these threats as a priority. Um, it was, it was a rough period. When you say you couldn't get the folks there to take this as a priority, do you mean in the intelligence community or do you mean in the administration? In the actual operations division that I was working in. Okay. So ultimately... Not to mention everywhere else, right? <laughs> not, to, not to mention everywhere else, okay. Ultimately, nothing in fact happened on New Year's 2000 or for that matter in the transition from the year 2000 to 2001. Did you or any of your colleagues feel like you know, that this was some sort of victory, a sense of relief that, you know, maybe this problem isn't as big as, as we imagined, or maybe now we're finally on top of it. How did you, how did you feel? Was there a sense of, oh, thank goodness, you know, we're in the clear? It was, no. I mean, it was a sense of we dodged a bullet. Uh, we were very aware that we were fighting a war. We were very aware from uh, those of us who worked this issue from the beginning, we were very aware that we were fighting a war by 1995. Some people realized that as early as 1992, that that's what was going to be happening. And um, so we knew the fact that the tax didn't happen most parts of the world was really just dodging a bullet. And we were still seeing all kinds of plotting. I was still seeing things from the desk where I was. And so there was really not much of a a letdown, really, in our effort. It wasn't 24-7, you know, all the time, but uh, people kept work charging pretty hard. It's, in, down. it's interesting you mentioned that, that you and your colleagues felt at that time, and actually many of you had for, for years, that we were in a war because I was in the intelligence business and as an analyst at the time, not working on terrorism, working on other topics, but dealing with, you know, national security, military kinds of issues. And I and I, and I know for, the, for a fact that the people I was working with, we had no sense that, that there was this shadow struggle going on. We had no sense that in any meaningful uh, way, shape, or form, we were 
in a war. So I think it's fascinating how you all had that perspective and, and, and felt like you were in the trenches and the rest of us are just sort of whistling along our merry way, having a nice time. Yeah, that was one of our biggest frustrations during this time period was it was very hard to um, publish everything that we wanted to say about Al-Qaeda and to get all of the support that we knew we needed throughout the intelligence community. One of the things that was happening during this time period was that Director Tennant had said, you know, the primary customer is the White House. And even even before him, this had already started to happen. And so finished analytical projects were being aimed at the most senior policymakers and the things that we had been used to publishing throughout the community, the intelligence and policy community, in order just to inform people um, were, were drying up. And so we felt that we couldn't get people on board because we literally weren't able to lay out our case as well as we would have liked. So we dodged a bullet in 2000, as you describe it, and then came the summer of 2001, and in the famous phrase from the 9-11 Commission report, uh, the, the system was blinking red uh, in 2001, in the summer of 2001. Can you describe the atmosphere in the Counterterrorism Center during that summer of, of that year? Yeah, we actually started in the spring um, when we started seeing indications, or at least when the indications became just huge, that something enormous was going to happen. This was going to be a game-changing kind of terrorist plot. And as time went by, I felt, at least personally, by the summer that we, the clock was going to run out, that you know, it was getting very hard to figure out. We couldn't figure out exactly what the plot was. And all we could do is try every trick in the book, again, thinking of this as a war, to round up all the people we could round up, thwart all the little plots and groups all over the world that we could, and just hope that we managed to disrupt the big one. Um, Even without it, quite knowing you, what, that you were doing it. Exactly. And that's how we had disrupted many a plot before that. Uh, and this strategy worked really, really well. And I think you see in some of the more recent literature people talking about how this strategy works now. It's not a new strategy. It's something that was developed by the CTC ops team, by the women, uh, in the mid-90s. Where were you on the morning of September 11th, and how did you hear about the attacks that morning? I was um, actually sitting with a colleague. I'll never forget this. It's like I'm, I'm there. I can see it. Another senior analyst in CTC. I was doing strategic analysis by that time, so I wasn't doing the day-to-day al-Qaeda um, grind, but I was working on uh, related issues. And I was lamenting to him our problem, uh, just what I had told you, trying to get these people on board, trying to get them to understand how many resources we have. Um, it was so frustrating. And then I hear over the, um, actually our, our catchphrase was, we're all going to die because <laughs> we, you know, we can't get enough done. And we heard this, I heard over the uh, wall that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. So I peek over the cubicle wall, and one of my colleagues has real player up on his computer, and you know, a little screen, you can see the New York World Trade Center burning. On CNN or something like that? On CNN or something, yeah, I don't remember what, probably at that time it was CNN, right? And um, so our first thoughts, like everybody else, the first impulse is, you know, is it a small plane? What happened here? And being an Al-Qaeda analyst, I'm, I'm making myself ask the question, is it a small plane? Uh, because I don't want to jump to any conclusions. Then a few seconds later, I mean, it really happened. Uh, the timing was amazing. The second plane flew into the other tower, and I just knew. There was no doubt in my mind who had done this. And, you know, as an analyst, the first thing you do, if you've been working a lot of crises, which by that time I had, the first thing you do is you ask yourself, okay, 
I really think this group had done it. Who else could have done it? And I rapidly ran through the list in my head, and there just wasn't any other option as far as I could see. This was Bin Laden. This had to be Bin Laden. So what was the atmosphere like in CTC on that day? Were people angry? Were they, you know, stunned and depressed? Were they crying? I mean, what, what was it like to be there as this catastrophe was unfolding? That day, it was very professional, actually. Again, these are people who had lived with the fact that there was going to be this huge terrorist attack. The senior analysts in this office and even some of the kind of mid-range analysts had dealt with several terrorist attacks before this one. So everybody just swung into, you know, crisis handling mode. Now, that's not to say that people weren't, it wasn't an emotional impact. It, it was, but it came out in weird ways. Like, for instance, I recommended very strongly that we evacuate the building right away because the fourth plane was still out. I mean, even after the Pentagon attack happened, we knew there was still a fourth plane out there. And, um, and of course, you know, CTC is getting information from the FAA. And I said, look, this is, this is our, our knowledge on Al-Qaeda. We're going into a shooting war. There was no doubt in my mind we were going into a shooting war immediately. And we need to make sure that this stable of people who are the experts in the world, really, on this group, are still around. I didn't want this to be a real Pearl Harbor. But the reaction to me was, are you kidding? We can't leave our post. This is wartime. So that's how the emotional aspect really manifested itself. I should mention that the rest of us at CIA headquarters who were not working on terrorism did evacuate the building. So you all, you guys were all, you and probably the seventh floor management were all alone in that complex. We were all here. And then Director Tennant, as he tells it, and I know, I remember this from the time too, he didn't want to leave his office either. And he had to be, you know, moved out to another building. So on September 11th, then, what, t- what time did you go home? Were you, you know, working all day and all night, or how did that work out for you? Yeah, I actually, I volunteered for the night shift. So I went home at 4 o'clock and tried to catch some rest. Well, that didn't work. All I did was pace in my living room the whole time and ended up just going back to the office. Um, the people working Al-Qaeda at the time, the primary analysts on the organization, I knew would need to be there during the day to answer a zillion taskings and go to briefings and all that kind of stuff. Um, I knew we needed somebody senior on the night shift because that's the, the person who puts together the spot report, puts together the PDB, briefs the people who are, who are the briefers of the PDB, talks to them early in the morning, and we would need somebody who had a depth of knowledge on Al-Qaeda and experience working uh, this kind of crisis to handle the, the PDB briefing. So that's what I did. But, but that wasn't all I did. We, we talked about going to shifts, and, and some of the younger animals were, in fact, on shifts. They were on 12-hour shifts. But those of us who'd been in CTC for a long time, we just, it just never stopped. You ran from, literally ran from one thing to the next for weeks. And I would, I would, uh, brief the team, do the PDB duty at night, brief the managers in the morning when they came in, run over to the financial side and see how they were doing because I was helping um, pull together information uh, for the administration because the president immediately wanted to start list a bunch of, of organizations as terrorist financiers or work with Treasury, run over to the op side and help them with some leads, run over and talk to the Iraq analysts who on September 12th were getting you know, questions on how Iraq was behind it all, which was ridiculous. It was a huge waste of time. And so literally running back and forth between each of these tasks and then like trying to catch a nap here and there. So you were keeping your professionalism and, and maybe being a little hyper, but you were keeping on target and on task while you were at work. Was it different when you went home? Did you decompress when you all went home? 
you know, even though we were being very professional at work, I don't want to make it sound like we weren't, you know, affected emotionally by this. Of course we were. And we would go home. I remember I, I would go home and I hear these stories from other people. And the times that you actually got to go home for long enough to catch some sleep, eight hours at a time or whatever, and cry. You'd cry in the car, you'd cry at home, and, and then you'd cry in the car back, and then you get to work and no more tears, and you just, you just get to work and focus, and then you go home and cry some more. And I remember even reading about how you know, people in the White House were doing this. Uh, this is what happens. You have an interesting story that you've told me offline about a meeting, some sort of, uh, you know, pep talk, if you will, that I guess Director Tennant gave to the to the troops and and how the stress of all this seemed to be wearing on him. Yeah, the stress was wearing on everybody. And so Kofor Black spoke first, and, and uh, I'll never forget Kofor, this. I should just interrupt and say Kofor Black was the head of the Counterterrorism Center at that time. Yes, he was. Thank you. And he... He stressed that you know people needed to treat each other gently. It, I kind of liken this to it was the best of times as it was the worst of times. People's tempers were snapping. On the other hand, people were also kind of hugging each other more, that kind of thing, showing more support, kind of bonding in the trenches, if you will. And I guess some, some pretty nasty things had been said here and there. I experienced a little bit of that myself. So Kofor was talking to people and saying, you know, really be nice to each other. And he actually used the line from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He said, be excellent to each other. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, so, yeah, I thought it was great. And so then uh, Tennant got up there, and he was talking about his personal experience. And he had a friend who was killed in the Pentagon, a neighbor, actually. And uh, he was talking about how he felt that he was in the right place at the right time. And you could tell he just had this horrible headache, and he was holding his head, and he reached for an aspirin bottle. I'm sorry, now I'm going to choke up. <laughs> um, and his hand was shaking so badly he couldn't get the lid off, and somebody had to go up there and help him. That must have been quite a moment, uh, uh, probably quite a moment of uh, emotional unity, I would imagine, for everybody. That's yeah, when, the, probably, when, the, when the leader is shaky himself. There probably wasn't a dry eye in the room. Within a few days after seven, uh, September 11th, CIA, not surprisingly, added you know enormous resources to Counterterrorism Center. I, I'm, I'm sure in terms of money and authorities, but also in terms of personnel. Uh, I remember quite a lot of the people that I worked with uh, in a different part of the Directorate of Intelligence uh, suddenly went off to work in CTC. How, how did that work? You know, with with those the old timers, if I may, uh, like you, you know, receiving all these newcomers who probably outnumbered you, I would imagine. Yeah, it was an expressing. They outnumbered us by, you know, several factors, actually. Um, some people came in who volunteered immediately. They wanted to go to CTC. They wanted to help out. And some of those folks became such tremendous assets to the office then and, and over the following years. Other people were, you know, assigned to come to uh, CTC, and some of them also dove right in and did great work. But there were some people who had, you know, no interest in terrorism, had nine to five jobs on Europe or something like that, and really did not want to be sent to the counterterrorism center. And so that was a problem because they're given, these people are then given primary responsibility for some important part of the world and they don't want to do it, right? The senior analysts really wanted to be able to mentor the people coming in. So we would rather have had it like a guild set up where you have a guild master and you have all these people that you're training, but it didn't work that way. So in some senses, it was just really hard because people were getting responsibility over stuff and they had no background. On the other hand, we had enough bodies 
that, and I was always very grateful for this, and it's something I told the 9-11 Commission, we had enough people in the center pretty quickly, within a couple of weeks, that all the spot reports and the, and the triaging, the incoming cables and all that kind of stuff could be done by people other than the senior analysts, and those of us who've been around a long time could, could spend our time running around on all of these other tasks, and it was really very useful. Did you have any sense that the newcomers somehow felt like uh, they'd come in to rescue you from your incompetence because obviously you hadn't been up to the job? Yes, Mark, thank you for, for asking that question. There, there was a certain percentage of people who did appear to feel that way, um, including managers, and that was hard. Um, it didn't manifest itself so much right away, but it became more and more apparent as the months went by that there was this assumption that we had just been a bunch of failures. And so people from elsewhere had to come in and, you know, quote unquote, fix uh, what we had done. And one of the reasons why it was so easy for people to believe that was because we had always been considered analytical second class citizens. We weren't doing a traditional account. We didn't do traditional kinds of work. Um, and so we people kind of thought down about us most of the time anyway, so it was easy for them to jump to that conclusion. And then the, then the commissions and the recriminations and all that stuff happens, and so people just latch right on to, you guys were a bunch of failures. I take it you and your colleagues don't feel like you failed on 9-11, or how do, you, how do you feel about looking back on it, about the performance of you and, and, and your colleagues? You know, it's, it's a really hard question to answer because, on the one hand, we didn't stop the plot. And no matter how much you tell yourself that it's not your fault, that you did everything you could possibly have done, and other people tell you the same thing, you still have this guilt for um, not having been able to stop it. And I think, I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, but on the other hand, we really did. I mean, we were practically killing ourselves. We were working six and seven days a week, you know, 13 and 14 hour days, and we've been doing this for years. And we were just understaffed and under-resourced, and, and uh, there's only so much a person can do. Let me just close with one final question here. I remember, I w as I say, I wasn't working on terrorism myself, but during 2001, after the attacks and into 2002, I would just time to time in my own traffic see some of the threat reporting, and people would talk about it in the hallways and that sort of thing. And there were certainly times when I was maybe not afraid for my own safety, but definitely more than a little uneasy. Was there, was there ever a time, either before 9-11 or after it for that matter, when you felt personally afraid for your own safety and your own survival? You know, it's funny, it wasn't fear. I mean, I was cognizant of the fact, of course, as a, as a counterterrorism analyst, that that fourth plane could have been heading for us, especially since uh, Ramsey Yusuf, very well aware that Ramsey Yusuf had 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 a plot in the First World Trade Center, after the First World Trade Center, to uh, fly a small plane into CIA headquarters. So we knew we were a potential target, but it's lived with that for so long that it was really more an issue of, you know, we're in a war, we've got to do our mission, and and uh, terrorist events are really very rare, and there's very little chance we'll be hit. And even if we are, this is just what it is. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't jump every time I hear a low-flying aircraft, because I do. You also, you and your colleagues were also issued an interesting little bit of equipment not long after September 11th. What was that? We were. Um, 
and I don't know where the counterterrorism center. I don't know how this happened, but I know that everybody in the counterterrorism center was issued a little, uh, a very a little plastic whistle flashlight combination. And the reason for this particular whistle was it's so loud. It was the most uh, unbelievably loud thing I've ever heard. This little tiny thing that the theory was you could be heard if you, you could be heard if you were buried under a bunch of rubble, so that somebody would you know come and save you if you would be stuck under there. And that probably sounds a little crazy, um, and a lot of people didn't wear it, but some of us did, um, partially realizing that the threats are, are real, and partially just as a reminder of, of what had happened and what could still happen. Well, Cynthia Sora, thank you so much for sharing your, your fascinating story, and you know, it's, it's trite uh, at this point, but let me say in all sincerity, I, you know, thank you for everything that you, and I know you have many, many anonymous colleagues who did just fabulous work over a long period of time against tremendous odds. So thank you so much for that. And also, on a much more minor note, thank you also for appearing here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you very much, Mark. It was a great, it was a pleasure. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.